Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. and welcome to our deep sea domain this is under consultation an episode by episode podcast type situation through the uk's greatest video game challenge tv show games master i am one of your hosts luke owen a podcast host that future podcast hosts will laugh at for being pish and how are you ken i am ash versus this episode aired on the 9th of january 1997 and would you adam and eve it FIFA 97 is still top of the video game charts despite Diablo being a new entry, the Spice Girls are still top of the pops with two become one, but we have a new number one at the top of the UK box office. It's Star Trek First Contact. No, I'm kidding, it's a visa. Bastard. Which we've already talked about before, kind of, because as you pointed out the other week, we've got the uh, the controversy regarding the casting of Madonna. This film really feels like kind of a cursed project because here we are, what, 1996 going on 1997, 20 years after they started trying to get this shit made. 
Yeah, this has been like in production. There's basically been failed versions of this movie going back as far as the mid seventies. It, it's one of those films that clearly like someone had a passion for. Like, we need to get this film made. We need to get this film made. You know, there are so many films that go around Hollywood that just never get done because they go through a failed production and then that's it. They end up in development hell. But this is a movie where someone was clearly driving this forward. It's like, no, we've got to do this. We've got to do this. I really want to do this. This is what the picture needs to be. So here we are. The film is finally here and it's totally fine with some controversial casting in it. I'll be honest, I'm, I'm looking at a painting right now of Ava Perron. I'm looking at Madonna. It's not the worst likeness in the world. Like, I have seen worst resemblances to historical figures. And, and it's clearly a role that she really, really wanted. She got this role after writing a four-page letter. And I'm sorry, that's not a letter. That's a dissertation. She wrote a four-page essay to Parker, basically going, I, I want to do this role. I want to be this person. Might be a bit controversial, but hey, I want to do it. And apparently, writing essays to directors is a way to get a role in a film. You basically annoy them into casting you. I think probably for Alan Parker as well, who is the director of this movie, it was probably thrilling to find someone else that was as, you know, into this movie because you know, we talked about that travel production. It's the same director. In all of those years, Alan Parker was the first person to approach people and be like, we should do a movie version of that musical Evita. Well, that's the thing. This actually happened before it was a musical. This was just a, a, a concept album. And they were like, no, we don't want a film. We want to do a stage version. And so... The interest in making a film predated the stage show by two years. The stage show didn't appear until 1978, but Alan Parker was on them in 1976 going, I want to make this happen. Yeah, credit to him. He did. Not a lot of directors that have got real big passion projects get their films made, but credit to Parker. He is one of them. I mean, it's, he must have some excellent connections within Hollywood to get this film done. He's got an interesting filmography because when I think of Alan Parker, I don't think necessarily of Evita straight away. I think of, unsurprisingly, Pink Floyd's The Wall, also based on a concept album. I think of Bugsy Malone, which has one of the best songs ever if you ever need to end a pie fight. I also forget that he directed the 2016 reboot of Dad's Army. I was going through his filmography and it's like, yeah, yeah, okay, that all makes sense, makes sense, makes sense. Hang on, Dad's Army. And then I had the sudden thing of like, oh yeah, they did a big screen reboot of Dad's Army, didn't they? That had completely left my mind. And I think it left a lot of people's minds as well, because I don't think it was particularly well received when it came out. No, it left people's minds while it was still being advertised. It only made 12.8 million at the box office. Empire's review of it described the plot as moderately entertaining bunkum and described it as an inessential oddity. That's got a good cast, though. Look at that. Toby Jones, Bill Nighy, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Blake Harrison, Michael Gambon. There are people in the movie. It, there's only so far Dad's Army as a name can take you. You still need to be good. I mean, the casting, you're right, absolutely. Bad. This is how little interest we have in Evita. We've moved on to Dad's Army in 2016. Toby Jones... Perfect casting for pa Captain Mannering, in my opinion. Same with Bill Nye as Sergeant Wilson. Because John LeMasseur always felt like the odd one out. He was always the kind of the very uh, kind of smooth, genteel gentleman. And Bill Nye, he can carry that off quite well. Michael Gambon as Godfrey. 
um yeah amazing stuff oh, absolutely perfect casting there like i'm this is how cool i am i'm actually currently re-watching uh this year's great british menu uh the theme of which was 100 years of broadcasting so every uh course that people suggest is inspired by something from the 100 years of broadcasting and there were two dishes in the first heat and the central heats that were based on dad's army because you know it's the bbc and they've got all their the archive stuff they showed two clips from it two clips being when they drop off the uh 500 pounds in newspaper because he doesn't want anyone to rob him on the way there so he thought if i wrap it in newspaper people will just think it's half a pound of sausages and what he's actually bagged up is half a pound of sausages and left the 500 quid somewhere else and the other clip was legit i think one of the funniest scenes in any british sitcom is your name will also go on the list what is it don't tell him pike pike thank you and those both of those clips like made me and my wife laugh so much and it's a it's a brilliant brilliant little sitcoms it's it's a bit of a shame that the the big screen one didn't quite hit those say like not even you're not even asking to hit at the same levels just be nearly as good but yeah also evita is number one there you go and we will find other ways to avoid talking about evita <laughs> over the coming weeks and we've nothing more to say about the Spice Girls other than safe sex or pegging. Could go either way. Uh, in the other TV news, January 3rd, the final episode in the second run of the game show Celebrity Squares, presented by Bob Monkhouse, is broadcast on ITV, although it would be revived briefly in 2014 and 2015. On January 6th, Scottish band Texas released their first single, Say What You Want. And on January 7th, the Spice Girls released their debut single, Wannabe, in the United States where they would make quite the splash in the end. How did that do in the US? I've just had a quick check of Wikipedia. It topped the Billboard Hot 100. Charts in the US are confusing. I mean, we have multiple charts over here, but we just have the UK number one single, and that can be any genre. Whereas the US, you've got the Billboard Top 100, but you've also got the Billboard country charts. So you've got the Billboard Top 100. I think you've also got the Billboard Hot 100, which is a different list. So for, as an example, Wannabe was top of the Billboard Hot 100. It was 27th of the Adult Top 40. It was 9th in the Latin Pop Airplay, 4th in the Mainstream Top 40, and number 1 in the Rhythmic Billboard charts. The rhythmic billboard charts. Is that the music you have on in the background while you're getting up a rhythm? Well, I was going to say, I mean, the adult top 40. I'm, I'm just saying Two Become One will be their next big single for them in that one in, in particular. Speaking of music, on January 9th, David Bowie performs his 50th birthday bash, which is the day after his birthday, at Madison Square Garden with guests Frank Black, the Foo Fighters, Sonic Youth, Robert Smith of The Cure, Lou Reed, and Billy Corgan of The Smashing Pumpkins, with the opening act being Placebo. Proceeds from the concert went to the Save the Children Fund. Oh, well, that's something. It's a heck of a lineup. Although on the same day, and obviously the day that this episode aired, controversy as BT releases an advert featuring Letitia Dean and nine other former EastEnders stars in its friends and family promotion, despite the BBC threatening them with legal action. Now there are twice as many reasons to keep in touch with BT's friends and family. Hello? Hi, it's me. Look, I'm trying to organise a get-together. Great. Sounds great. Yeah, what time should we make it? So if you're not doing anything, come along. Good idea. But I can't stay late. I like to be in bed by nine. BT's friends and family has now doubled in size. You now get 10% off not just five, but ten numbers, and it's free to join. So make your list and ring 0800 05 55 55 right now. One of them 
can be an international number. I'd love to. You would? Oh, that'd be brilliant. And one can be a mobile. I tell you, this digging lark's gonna do me in. <laughs> BT's friends and family. It's doubled in size so you can make twice as many savings. The BBC subsequently withdraws its threats to sue after BT pays them an undisclosed five-figure amount. And definitely not 500 quid wrapped in sausages. <laughs> Could have been. Luke, I've got some terrible news from the world of magazines. Oh no. Bubsy the Bobcat 3D's UK release has been canned. Oh dear. I know. I'm people loved that game. People loved Bubsy. He was so cool with his catchphrases. He was not a poochie at all. Oh, look! An arrow! Aren't these game designers wonderful? Giving you a guidepost to help you find your way? How convenient! But the article says, picture the scene if you will. It's the beginning of an issue and we're hunting high and low for yet another packed to bursting point amount of games. We phone up Telstar hoping to grab a copy of last month's previewed Bubsy 3D for the 32-bit consoles, and lo and pig and behold, if the feisty critter hasn't gone and got himself cancelled. Yep, the cute little cat obviously didn't go down too well at Telstar HQ, with the news this month that the company will no longer be marketing the game on the UK, leaving developers' accolade in considerable shtuck. Sources tell us that Warner Interactive are interested in the game, but, for a while at least, the animal's been put down. I, just, I didn't even know that it didn't get released here. I think I just assumed that it would. It did eventually get released uh-huh. here, but basically the game turned up, Telstar played it and went, this game is shit. Because it kind of was. Yeah, I mean, do you remember that um that Will Ferrell, John C. Riley, Sherlock and Watson movie? Yes. Yes, that was so bad that Sony didn't actually want to release it. And they were just, they basically weren't going to, you know, release it in cinemas. So they actually just tried to ship it to Netflix to give it to Netflix as a an exclusive movie for them. And Netflix said no. And if Netflix is saying no to your movie, how bad is it? I can tell you how bad it is because I've tried to watch, uh, Home, I think it was just called Holmes and Watson. I've tried to watch it and I made it about 15 minutes in before I had to abandon ship. That's rough. It is really rough going. Netflix will release most anything as long as they think there's probably some sort of hypothetical break-even point. And even if there isn't, Amazon won't be far behind. Or, I don't know, Hulu, maybe? You'd have thought Netflix would have been able to sell it just on the fact it's, you know, uh, John C. Riley and Will Ferrell. They have an audience. They gave Adam Sandler a heck of a lot of money to bring in his audience to Netflix, and that did work. But they took one look at it and were like, mm, nope, don't fancy this one at all. Well, speaking of things being cancelled and ditched, just one other little bit of news. WH Smiths have announced that they are ditching the 16-bit and Saturn software from their game section. Oh, the, like, the 16-bit one is, is almost no surprise. It's amazing it's still there, really. But the Saturn one's a huge blow there and a real telling sign of where we are in 1997. Yeah, it makes PC games the dominant feature in most shops, sharing space with the odd PlayStation title. Over 200 shops now stock PC titles. Control, control. This is uh, Charlie Detlock, Phoenix Detton the Green, POB. Good evening and welcome to Games Master. Now a lot of viewers were concerned after last week's girly special because technically I was wearing a dress. People thought this may have heralded a new direction in the show and we had comments like appalled, betrayed and nice bumbo, Dominic. Rest assured though, this week we're back and we're harder than ever. Do you know what, Ash? 
after we had Mario Gate and then the Girly Special, it was quite nice just to have like a regular episode of Games Master. We, you know, we took essentially a month off while we waited for the book to come around, and then we had the the those two episodes. So it feels like it's been a while since we've just had a normal episode of Games Master to talk about. You say normal. Luke, this episode opens with a faux battlefield and helmets and pins being pulled out of grenades with teeth and tossed over shoulders. I suppose it's normal by Games Master standards, but it is also a reactionary measure to the presumed backlash over the girly special because, you know, war, good God, y'all, what is it good for? Uh, Reinforcing testosterone levels, apparently. Exactly. It just shows that they are blokes after all, because technically Dom was wearing a dress last week, but now he's back being blokier than ever. War and guns and that. Yeah, war and guns and casually tossing a grenade off screen to explode, which I'm sure is purely a creative decision and not because they couldn't afford the explosion in the budget. Wonder who they were taking aim at. Anyway, I think we should probably get into our first challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? My first event is on a game that's attracted an unparalleled following amongst new and diehard game fans, Street Fighter. Today, I've invited four players to discover who really is the master of this most demanding game. Each will play a round against the computer as Ken. The one who takes longest to dispense with the computer opponent will be eliminated. The remaining players will fight again until one player has proved they are the most devastating fighter. How are you, Ken? Oh, this is more like it when you talk about being back to usual. We got a Street Fighter, but not just any Street Fighter, Street Fighter Zero Two. This is a awesome, awesome little challenge here. The, The thing I love about this Alpha 2 challenge is that this challenge, this shows why Dom's changes were for the better in in terms of games master because this challenge would not have happened in series one two or three there wouldn't have been time for it it actually probably wouldn't have happened in four either but once dom started making his his you know changes to the show and putting more emphasis on longer form challenges we get kind of little gems like this had this been in series two or series three it would have just been single elimination three games just whoever wins goes through this adds a whole different level of skill and challenge to it. And it makes for an awesome little watch because it's got a great story that goes throughout it as well. I love that we're not just doing a round robin competition. I just think this is such a clever way of doing this because everyone's got their own tactics. And we do see three very different sets of tactics being used to get those fastest times possible. Street Fighter Zero Two, though. I went slightly cross-eyed looking up this title because, of course, I know Japan and Asia and those territories, Zero Two. America, Western territories, Alpha Two. However, Alpha Two is not just a name change of Zero Two. Alpha Two contains extra characters and refinements, stuff that they made after and based on feedback from Zero Two. But then where it gets confusing, they added those updates into another release that was released in Japan, which was called Street Fighter Zero Two Alpha. Yes. Which makes reading web pages about this quite confusing because quite often a lot of people 
flip-flap back and forth, and it's a case of, are we talking about just Alpha 2, Zero 2, or Zero 2 Alpha? But I remember playing this game. I still love it now. I've got it on the Nintendo Switch. I'm fairly certain I have it on at least one compilation on the Xbox or the PlayStation as well. I think it's my favourite of the post-Street... You know, the sort of spin-off Street Fighter series. Like, I prefer this to EX or, you know, and, and things like that. I or Actually, maybe the Marvel vs. Capcom stuff, I really did enjoy that. But what I really like about Alpha, um, and one of the reasons why Alpha sticks so much with me, particularly Alpha 3, which I, I had on the PlayStation, it might be my favourite art style of any of the Street Fighter games. I, I think the sprites just look gorgeous. I love everyone's costume updates that they have had, particularly like Chun-Li. I think Chun-Li looks amazing in uh, in the Alpha series. So, yeah, I think this is my favorite of the art styles and, like, character select art styles as well. Mm. Who is your go-to? It was Ken. It, it was, was Ken. It was Ken. Ken was my go-to in Alpha 3. I like Rolento. Big, big fan of playing as Rolento. I like playing as Rolento. I hate facing. Oh, he's a jumpy little beggar. Yeah, it just... Spoilers, he comes up in this challenge and I'm just like, ah, shit, it's Rolento. <laughs> they don't have much problem with him, but just him appearing on the screen just makes me go oh no not this dickhead he's like vega in street fighter 2 and by that i mean claws you know he, he's like vega who's just boom 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 all over the screen and yelping and screaming and all that stuff although in the case of valento i was the one doing most of the yelping and screaming my favorite thing about alpha 2 uh is that you know you'd have thought a lot of the places released on make sense arcade playstation saturn pc and that but this got a snes port and a damn fine one as well. Stop Skeletons from Fighting have an amazing video on sort of like the history of this port. And I think it was a series they did called I Can't Believe It's On That System or something like that. And But anyway, if you look up Stop Skeletons from Fighting Street Fighter Alpha 2, you can find the, the video on that because it is really impressive what they managed to do with it. If I remember correctly, it was a rarity in that because of the compression and the chips that they used, it technically had load times because it had to decompress sound into the chip on the SNES itself. There was all this stuff going on. It was a technical marvel to get the thing running as well as it did on the SNES. But yeah, it gave you a Super Nintendo with a noticeable load time. Yeah, it's not quite getting Resident Evil 2 onto the N64 levels of how the hell did you do that? But still, it is a really impressive little thing. Because you might think, oh, it's just a 2D beat map. There's a lot to this 2D beat-em-up that is in there. And yeah, you're right, like it actually, in a way, creates a little bit of load time on the Super Nintendo. I think at the time there was a lot of misconception of, oh, only a 2D beat-em-up, not really understanding what goes into the animation, the cells, if you will, the amount of frames required for that really amazingly smooth, flowing style. Street Fighter 3 is another great example. It was taking the art form of the 2D beat-em-up and escalating it, but people were so caught up in the polygonal mass that they just didn't see the artistry before them, or a lot of people didn't. I mean, there were people like myself and a lot of others that still loved 2D fighting games and 2D art and 2D style. But as we've seen on Games Masters, we've seen in the contemporary reviews that we've been looking at, 3D was where it was at. Yeah, a 2D fighter is sort of seen as passe, at this point, you know, we're moving beyond that 3D all the way. But as we've mentioned many times in this podcast, those 2D fighters from this era have aged so much better than a lot of the early 3D fighters. Now, our four contestants for this challenge technically have surnames, but legal restrictions prevent me from revealing them for the purposes of this challenge. They are simply Gary, Metro, Ian and John. 
Okay, now, let's start with you, Gary. You work, you work in a restaurant? Yes. If you were a main course, what would yeah. it be and why? It would be a hamburger and fries. Why is that? Because it will always be a classic meal. Ah, good. Like that one. Metro? I'm presuming that's not what you were christened. No. No, it's no. not. What, what is your real name? Metro. Me All right, it's one of those. Okay, so why Metro? I was small and nippy when I was younger. Fine. Ian? Now, your nickname is Mr. Z. Yeah. Why is that? Well, because um, I use Zangief from a local arcade and I've got a reputation for using just him and I'm quite lethal with that character. Right. Mr. Z. So it's Mr. Z based on... Zangief. On, on Zangief, yeah. Play. If it was based on your clothes, it could be Mr. C and A. Oh, yeah. Oh, you can talk like, you know what I'm saying? And I didn't actually understand one word he said there. I mean, it's some kind of youth culture thing there. I don't really know. Uh, and finally... John, uh, what, what you st you're studying A-levels just now? Yeah. And what are you studying? Art, media and business. And what are you going to do after that? Go to university. And probably. what are you going to study at university? Um, graphic design. And what are you going to do after that? I haven't got a clue. And were the good old days really that good? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Playing this game with no surnames, it's Gary, Metro, Ian and John. Yeah, we can't use surnames for legal reasons. They don't say what those legal reasons are. It's just they can't be said. For legal reasons, I'm guessing those legal reasons, Luke, are legal reasons. But we've got some pretty confident lads here. You know, Gary is a, is a pretty confident guy. In fact, he could, might call himself a bit of a classic because he is burger and fries if you were to order him in a restaurant. So he works at McDonald's then? Uh, yes, I suppose, because they don't specify which. But, you know, hey, fancy end restaurants will also serve burgers. He could work at a Wimpy. Great British classic. Oh, absolutely. Could do. Metro. Now, that's not his real name, is it? But what was he christened? Apparently it was christened Metro. Oh, says Dom. One of those. <laughs> <laughs> but why Metro? Well, he was small and nippy when he was younger. I guess like a, a mini Metro. Yes, I suppose that makes more sense. I was trying to think of like the Metro system. But yes, I suppose a mini Metro makes way more sense in that aspect. I actually wasn't sure until just now when I just went, oh, wait, my mum had a mini Metro. They were quite small and nippy, also noisy and cold, but small and nippy. That kind of makes sense. Ian, who claims his nickname is Mr. Z, f*** off. No, it isn't. No one's ever called you that apart from maybe you. We've gone a bit rimmer there, haven't we? Ace. It is. Absolutely no one. Or maybe one person did. And he's like, yeah, that's my cool nickname. Everybody calls me that. No, they don't. But why do they call him Mr. Z? It's because he's a geefer griefer. The Big Zang is his main, and he allegedly has a rep. Apparently so. I don't buy that for a second. Neither does Dom, because he takes him down a few pegs by going if the name was based on his clothes. He could be Mr. CNA. Oh, that is quite a good slam as well. Poor old CNA, though. I love Ian trying to respond to it, just going, hey, who first? Uh, mm, uh, mm. <laughs> and Dom's like, I did not understand a word he said. A higher brow show would have cut that out. Games Master did not. Absolutely not, though. Uh, so we move across to John, who's doing his A-levels. Then he's going to go to university and do graphic design, but doesn't know what he's going to do after that. And that's because he's doing graphic design. That's my own little personal slam there on people who do graphics design at university. Amazingly, despite being involved in graphic design, I did not do it at university. I had far better things to waste my time on for a year. But Luke, were the good old days really that good? He is basically unsure. I, I would be inclined to agree. 
it's whenever you see those memes on the internet that goes, if you remember this, you had a great childhood. And I'm like, well, that's an incredibly broad generalization. I'm sure some people remember the Grange Hill title sequence that had a miserable time in the 80s. I'm also just going to clarify as well. I'm only slamming people who did graphic design because I did graphic at uh, GCSE. And the only reason I did that is because my friends were doing it and I was being bullied enough as it was. So I didn't want to do home ec. But the problem was I can't draw. So I got a U in my GCSE for doing graphics. Oh, mate. Can't draw. I mean, I'm still looking forward to doing that Art Attack special, but it's going to be a messy one. I, and I literally, I, I should have done home ec because I can cook and I know what I'm doing there. And I probably would have done really well. But uh, actually, it might have been one of my only good GCSEs I could have got. But nope. I was like, I'm going to hang out with my mates instead. I'm going to doss around for a year. And I did. And then I got a U for my troubles. If you'd have done home ec, mate, you could be on Bake Off right now. Yeah, or MasterChef. Could have, could have gone either way. Sega's most successful video game character will finally make an appearance on the Saturn when Sonic Blast is released in March. The game, written by the Japanese Sonic team, is basically a rebound version of the Mega Drive title Sonic 3D, released last month, which featured the spiky one collecting lost little critters known as Flickies. All Sonic's old parts are in the Saturn game, as well as a 3D section ripped straight from Sonic 2. That'll be what they call progress. Well, speaking of people having nostalgia glasses for things that actually are a bit shit, Sonic Blast is uh, arriving here on the Sega Saturn. We were wrong. It's here. It's finally here. A Sonic... Uh, yeah, no. This is here as a just-in-case Sonic Extreme gets cancelled. And then, oops, Sonic Extreme gets cancelled, so we better rush this through so we can get this out for the Christmas 1996 market. Like, there, there was a, a Sonic tie-in animated special that was, that was released around here. I think it was called Sonic Christmas Extreme, and the idea being that it was there to promote Sonic Extreme. But because Sonic Extreme doesn't come out for that Christmas period, they renamed the Christmas special to Sonic's Christmas Blast to instead promote this game instead, even though at the end of the episode he goes, have an extreme Christmas and not have a not have a blast Christmas. I really want them to have just done the world's worst looping, where he's just at the end like, hey kids, have a blast Christmas. <laughs> but this was done on a very, very quick scale because, uh-oh, it doesn't look like that Sonic Extreme game's ever going to get done. So this was done in just eight months. Honestly, the Saturn version looks okay. I mean, we see the Mega Drive version in an episode or two as part of arguably one of the worst celebrity challenges we've had since Series 1 or 2. Like, real dog-egg Robotnik stuff going on. At least she has fun. <laughs> oh yeah, she definitely has fun. But the actual game is shown here for the Saturn. I'm looking at it, and then I'm looking at the Mega Drive version, and I'm thinking... This is a nice little upscale, a nice little conversion. Does it truly use the power of the Sega Saturn? No. Does it look like a marked improvement over the Mega Drive original? Yes. Yeah. But anyway, exciting news. There will be a Sonic game for the Saturn. Ish. Ish. Do you have any old games for this machine? Or this one? Or in fact, any old console? The good chaps at BFI, the institute that stores Britain's old films and TV shows, have embarked on a quest to create a library of the most important video games since time began, in the hope that future generations will be able to laugh at them and wonder what a bunch of gits we were to play such pish. If your cupboard contains games you think are significant in some way, and you're feeling generous enough to donate them to posterity, then the BFI in London would love a little chat. Don't bother with Manic Miner though, because they've already got that one. But speaking of old things trying to become new again, with a BFI putting together a library of the most important video games since time began. And if you've got them sitting at home, if you have got like some just things sitting around the house and stuff, you can submit them to the BFI. And I think that's a 
pretty cool thing to do. Like it's weird that you know nowadays people would just keep hold of them and collect them, but this is someone just trying to catalog the most important games in history. It is one of those cases where the BFI clearly recognise the importance of video games as a medium, but they're still trying to work out how best to approach it. And if you look at the BFI now, they've got huge amounts of stuff on their website to do with video games and narrative and storytelling, whereas here it does seem to be a bit of a case of what exactly are we doing? I'm not 100% sure, but we're doing something. Yes, it is cataloguing the most important games, but to what end is a, is a different matter. But, you know, hey, they, they can sort of eight copies of Manic Miner if they fancy it. They may end up with eight of them, but even though Dom does warn people, they've already got that one. Speaking of a little bit of retro gaming, I, I was driving in the car the other day, I was driving to work, and I sent this thought popped into my mind of, I could get the kid a BBC Micro. That'd be a, a, a fun little thing, because when she's a bit bigger, that could be like a really good educational tool for her. I had a BBC Micro when I was at school, and it was a good little educational tool. And I thought, maybe I'll just go onto eBay, and I bet you I can pick up a BBC Micro dead easy. No, it's a fucking minefield trying to buy a BBC Micro. I thought it'd be a piece of pish, but no, it's actually really hard to like find one that isn't just like a modded version of one, or that's just you know it's sold for spare parts and stuff. I know that the college I used to work at still has a functioning BBC Micro in one of the science labs because there is some sensors that it hooks up to. That, that, that's it. That, that, those sensors still work. And they don't even use the disk drive anymore. It's just a case of it's hooked up and you just print off the results and you have to manually copy type them in. No, it's not first contact. This is in fact Borg, the two-hour interactive movie released for the PC next March. Filmed on the real Star Trek sets and starring Q from the Next Generation cast, Borg should have Star Trek fans quite literally filling their pants as they mess about trying desperately to save the ship from destruction by the naughty old Borg. Once again, we don't get to talk about First Contact because this is not First Contact. This is instead Star Trek Borg. Which is a good companion piece to First Contact, featuring as it does the Borg, also featuring mainstay of the Next Generation villain, the Moriarty to Picard's homes, Apart from the fact that Picard did actually fight a digital version of Moriarty at times. It's got Q in it, is what I'm saying. John Delancey is in there as, as Q. It's an interactive movie-type situation. It's a lot of fun. It looks great as well because they filmed it on the real sets with the real costumes and like proper actors and proper script writers. It even had a full original score. When this was released, it got middling reviews at the time it came under a lot of criticism because the user interface was a little janky sometimes you would misclick on things because the focus wasn't quite tight enough nowadays it ranks right up there in the list of best star trek games because whilst yes the gameplay is still quite janky it really captures the spirit and the universe that it was set in it 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 feels like star trek you can still play it now under abandonware and whatnot and whilst the video footage sadly looks quite dog-ass. It is still good. This is a game I would love to see a Night Trap-style remaster of. Just, you know, tighten up the focusing a bit. Hopefully you've still got some, like, quarter-inch tape or some inch tape of the video elements and whatnot, and you can just make something that is a bit easier to run on modern systems. Yeah, it's it's a game that feels like, especially when you sort of like we've talked about there, like it wasn't at the time, but it certainly is now. You, I, I guess, like we didn't realize how good we had it in terms of the game. 
because when it came out it was like ah eh, you know it's, it's it's a totally fine little star trek game but sort of like now you look like oh my god did you see that it was filmed on the actual set writers from tng were working on this it had the cast it had its own score it was filmed on the voyager set it was filmed on like it, it feels real it feels like you're actually walking through star trek but at the time it was like yeah you know it's just it's just another fmv game although interestingly the guy that directed it was james l conway who had worked with john delancey as q on an actual episode of star trek voyager so james l conway had directed star trek before he was actually competing to direct first contact but lost out to jonathan frakes so this is his kind of consolation hand job because this was being filmed at the same time as First Contact, they had lots of Borg costumes around and that. Amazingly, not only did he lose out to Jonathan Frakes for First Contact, there was an audiobook made of this game that in itself was directed by Jonathan Frakes. So it's like, mate, you're slapping it out of my mouth here. I, I didn't just lose out to Jonathan Frakes, but I didn't even get to direct the audiobook of my own sodding game. It's, it's just back to fucking Voyager with you, mate. Basically, even a lot of the supporting cast, they were all Star Trek mainstays, but mainly kind of the unknown cast members you see in the background that are proverbial red shirts, the sort of people that will just get assimilated, melted, blown out an airlock, or, you know, get caught in an explosion of dry ice. That happened a lot. I do wonder, though, about the noise that Don makes at the end of this piece. I can't work out if it's disgust or excruciating joy, or maybe a little bit of both. Maybe it's just a case of, it's another FMV game. So it's good, but also, but it's also a Star Trek FMV game. And he does seem to quite like Star Trek. I think, yeah, we talked about this recently didn't we, when he was previewing First Contact. Like, we know he is a Star Wars fan. And he, he's clearly into his Star Wars, but... I think he feels more wars than Trek, but he really dug first contact. So maybe he's just in a real Trek mode at the moment. And like the the, the hype of first contact is carried over into this preview here. There were a lot of FMV games around, but it always gets slightly easier if it's a tie-in that does it well, that That's doesn't it, yeah. feel overly cheap. And a lot of tie-ins did feel very cheap. But this one, it feels like it's got some production values behind it. Yeah, and I think it kind of it ties in a little bit into a review we get later on, where you know it, it feels like the FMV game is a dying breed. So maybe it's just a case of this is almost like Dom is like, oh, I'm sick of seeing these games, but also at the same time, it's a pretty good one for what it is. Okay, standing almost uncomfortably close to me for this one is Derek Lynch from Namco Wonder. <laughs> Parts. <laughs> now, uh, Derek, you are about the only cool commentator who can compete with me on the fashion stakes. I've always wanted to talk about your cufflinks before, because you hold them up, I mean, because these are remarkable. I, I've got a very conservative little gold pair, but Derek's are like from the Tales of the Arabian Nights. Wicked. Okay, so we're trying to find the fastest fighter. We're using Street Fighter Alpha 2 for this. We're going to begin with all four competitors. They're going to play as the same character, Ken, against the same computer opponent. Uh, Sodom, and whoever beats him up in the slowest time will be knocked out. We'll then take the remaining three onto a further round, and so on until we are left with one in an almost Highlander type situation. Back into our challenge, and we have got Derek in the booth because, of course, we have it's an arcade little challenge, this one. But apparently, he is wearing quite lovely cufflinks. Yes, that we actually get a nice little kind of lens flare ting as we go a bit later because Derek is the only person that can compete with Dom on the fashion stakes. 
And also, for reasons only known to Derek, he is already laughing. And it feels like this is one of the only times in Games Master history where they decided that Derek's answer was not good enough, so they just cut away to a wide shot and use that as the edit cover-up. Because like Derek really doesn't actually say anything in this opening segment here. He just laughs, and then it cuts to a wide shot so Dom can explain what the challenge is. So just to recap on the challenge, it's the fastest fighter in Street Fighter Zero or Alpha 2, and we start with Ken versus Sodom. Clearly chosen because Dom thinks it's funny. Sodom is a character from the Final Fight series. The Alpha series was great for giving that 1v1 fighting debut to a lot of characters from the Final Fight series. Interestingly, despite his appearance, he's actually American. He is an American Japanophile that just kind of, he took it too far. His obsession, I guess, somehow led him to being a ringleader of the Mad Gear gang. One of my favourite things about the Alpha series, because I was a comic book kid, I love crossovers and things being within one shared universe. And one of the things, you know, that really attracted me to Alpha was Cody, you know, and, and things like Sodom. You know, and, and things like that, where it's like, oh, oh, wow, the Final Fight series. And even in Final Fight, you know, Chun-Li is in the background of one of the shots where it just it, it feels like this interconnected Capcom world. And that's kind of like, that's really exciting. It's why I really dug Marvel versus Capcom, the idea of these two fighting, like these two fighting properties crossing over. And yeah, like here, being able to play as Final Fight characters within a Street Fighter game, awesome. Like that, that's a really cool thing. But if you are into that, that sort of thing. Because you do get the Marvel versus Capcom where you've got characters from all different Capcom franchises. And sometimes it's a case of, oh, this is really unusual to see these two characters from these two different franchises together. But Final Fight and Street Fighter, that just works. It just makes like sense. Me they just Metro City is part of the Street Fighter universe as is Saturday Night Slam Masters, because Mike Hagar, mayor of the city, is also a pro wrestler. So it all merges in there. But that also means that Zangief and Mike Hagar would have wrestled each other, which I love. Yeah. And it's also one of those things, like if you've not played Final Fight, they don't feel out of place. They just sort of feel like they were created for this game. That's how seamlessly they merge in. Whereas you mentioned earlier, like, you know, characters sort of sticking out like a sore thumb. Phoenix Wright sticks out like a bit of a sore thumb when you come to Marvel vs. Capcom 3. As a Phoenix Wright fan, I was like, oh, awesome, he's in the game. And then you play, it's like, actually, no, this just feels weird. <laughs> it feels weird to be fighting as Phoenix Wright. Yeah, it, it's like a case of, oh, cool, my favourite character is in this. But then it's like, well, he's a lawyer, and this is a fighting game. Yeah, uh, ironically, playing as Phoenix Wright feels a bit Phoenix wrong. Hey, hey. Thank you, you're welcome. No objection. <laughs> I was making fun of Ian a bit earlier, and I think... Watching him here, it might be why I had sort of a bit of a, 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 a poking fun at him, because he is confident. I think Ian, going into practice, had a feeling he was going to win this and cakewalk it as well, because I reckon he was the fastest in all of the practice modes they did of this as well, because he's great. He's a really confident fighter, and spoilers... He does the best out of everyone up until the very final round. I mean, as it is essentially a speed run, there isn't a huge amount for us to say other than to describe their general tactics. And Ian, against Sodom, just rushes. He rushes in, he gets that dizzy, he gets a super, he gets a perfect. He takes 15 seconds. It's something like that. He's got 84 seconds left on the clock, yeah. So that's 15 seconds. 
it was some very, very tasty gameplay. And we talked about having kind of those early days, early doors Street Fighter on Games Master, where it would be a rarity to see a fireball or a dragon punch. And here we've got rushes, we've got combos, we've got supers, we've got deliberately using a combination of jumps and blows to get a dizzy. We have jumped up the skill tree quite considerably in a very short space of time. And it's excellent to see. So we've got John up next. And it's at this point, I suddenly realise, it's the first time we get to hear Derek speak. Because he was cut out of that intro and the first round was so fast, this is the first thing that Derek has said all challenge. John immediately makes a mistake in that he has seen what Ian did. So he already knows that he's got to move fast if he wants to you know, stay in this competition. But he doesn't rush in. He hesitates. He has some caution at the beginning. He also takes damage. The clock ends on 68 seconds and you can see it in his face. He's like, I biffed that. I absolutely trousered it. I I think at times, because he jumps back a lot, like he'll do a bunch of moves, then jump backwards and then go back in. It almost feels like it's muscle memory of that is how you would play the game at home. That sort of conservative, do a couple of hits, jump back and then go in for some more attacks as opposed to like what Ian did, which is just bum rush the lad. And I think that's what costs him a lot there. That hesitation you mentioned, and then almost like the muscle memory of just jumping backwards because it's the safe thing to do. Mini Metro is up next, and he just has to do better than 68 seconds to stay in. He goes for the rush. He traps him in the corner. It's a good run. Still not quite as good as Ian, though. 76 seconds. It's a really good. He's very good at the highs and lows, it is Metro. And that's basically his kind of tactic that he's going with. And it's something that Gary employs a a little bit as well, although he is also like Gary's whole thing is you've just got to do it faster than 68 seconds with 68 seconds remaining. And he does that quite easily because he just destroys Sodom with 81 seconds remaining. Yeah, he boxes him again. A super, a perfect. John's gone. He took up 31 seconds. And Dom's like, John, John, John. (laughs) Yeah, piss off. Sling your hook. Bus ferrome. I like as well that they replay Ian's run. This is like, it, they take it very, very seriously and they replay and show like why he was the fastest in that round. And it's like, you know, he keeps him stunned to build the power gauge. It's the hurricane kick and the dragon punch. They're taking this, you know, this is the sort of thing that Dave Perry would absolutely love. This is a Games Master Challenge taking itself very, very seriously. And despite the kind of, oh, war boy stuff at the beginning, this is now very high bar Games Master. You know, we had the fun and games of last week and the girly episode and all those japes. And then, of course, episode nine, moving on. And this is such a a dizzying high because we're not just getting a fun and well-constructed challenge, but we're getting a fun and well-constructed challenge with people that definitely know how to play the game. Maybe this is something that we'll come back to when we, we do the wrap-up of this episode, but it sort of disproves some of what Dom thinks about why series six works or like you know what made games master games master because for me as a games master viewer this is the sort of thing that does attract me to the show a really good challenge with really good players being really good at it i would agree but also say that if it was dry like if we were just watching a stream of these guys doing this I don't think it would land as well because there is a lot to be said for the humour, the interstitials and the way Dom's like, right, you're out, piss off. Oh, yeah. The the interplay and the build up and even the bits of banter at the beginning about what meal would you be? Why is your nickname Dr. Z or Mr. Z or whatever? It, it's, there is definitely, it's a combo. That's it. It's the, it's the balancing act between the two. But I think 
you know, going by sort of like interviews that Dom has has said and done, it's he thinks it's more towards this side as opposed to being this side. But I actually think it's somewhere in the middle is the real sweet spot of Games Master. I mean, that is us also viewing it with today's eyes and maybe our memories. But who knows if we were in the majority at the time? Maybe. So we go into our second portion of this, where they're now facing off against the aforementioned Rolento. And, you know, we talked about earlier him being a, a jumpy little beggar. But Ian has no issues with that whatsoever because he just boosh, dominates him straight into the corner, boxes him in there. 82 seconds remaining on the clock, once again showing that he is probably the best player of the lot. And also, just as a note, Rolento, another character rescued from the Final Fight universe. An interesting one because most bosses in Final Fight, when you defeated them, they just lay on the ground and faded away. Rolento blew himself up with his own grenades. He's hard him. But he wasn't a character I really encountered a lot in Final Fight because whilst I did play it in the arcade, my main memory of Final Fight came from the Super Nintendo version and he was not in it. His was one of the stages and areas that didn't get transferred across, not even to Final Fight Guy, but was in the Sega CD, the Game Boy versions, versions that appeared later, and of course the various arcade collections and conversions that have appeared since. He did eventually appear for Final Fight 2 on the SNES, though. So he, he, he made it there eventually, just not in the game that he was originally from. We also find out here that Metro is a former Nintendo games playing champion. So he's got some good pedigree behind him here. Yeah, they, I would have led with that, I think. It, it does feel a bit of a, oh, we probably best mention this, because technically that, plus the fact I believe he's later revealed to be a games tester slash developer, it does give him a bit of a leg up over the other lads. In had this been series one to three, that would have been the interview question. But this is post series four games master, so it is more let's make fun of something about you or let's focus on a thing that's a bit strange about you, i.e. your name. But Metro gets in there, he gets a dizzy super quick. He does, yeah, really, really quick, does a super move. But that takes its time to get done. So while Ian had 82 seconds remaining, Metro has 81 seconds remaining on the clock it's a real like oh that was close like if you watch people attempting to do speedrun world records and you know that they have done it but there's like a final bit of animation that needs to be finished first castlevania is a great example of this when you defeat the cookie monster boss and then it's that waiting to catch the orb which takes like two to three seconds and it's that like you've done it in this then you're watching that clock count down, buff, and then you jump up to grab it. That's kind of what you get here. It's like, you know he's already beaten it, but just like how much slower is he going to be? But Gary is up last. He has to be 81 seconds to stay in. He's not off to a good start. He hesitates. He takes a hit. And I mean, the clock drops below 80. Why carry on? You're done. Get out. He's not going to do it for any 78. Stop that guy. He carries on though. Like he's still playing there in the channel. Gary, Gary, stop playing. Gary, you're done. I'm not joking. Go, your bus is waiting for you. Don't make Dom come over there and kick you in. You mentioned there was the hesitation. Like once Rolento rolled away and he took a hit, I was like, yeah, he's done. Because it took 10 seconds. That like that whole sequence. 
10 seconds has already gone off his timer, which means he needed nine seconds, essentially, to get an entire health bar off of him. And that was never happening. Never going to happen in a month of Sundays. So we're now going into this final round. And I think it is safe to say that Ian is the favourite. He has been the fastest in both of the first two rounds. In fact, they even point out, on average, he's four seconds quicker than Metro is. So he stands in really good stead here to to win this golden joystick. You're absolutely right. And it is, there is, there is basically, it's in the first moment of Ian's go where you just realise it's nipples north. It, it's over for him. And it's just Chun-Li lands the first blow. Yeah. As soon as Chun has lands that first hit, it throws him. He loses his timing. He loses his momentum. He loses his confidence. That's that's the key to this here, because this goes horribly wrong for Ian, because she gets the first hit, and then she is all over the place. And you can feel his panic. You can feel his panic in the way that he is playing. Like, she even hits a shadow move on him. And he does eventually win, but oof, like, it was 53 seconds remaining on the clock here. He does not look pleased about it at all. I mean, even though he gets a super, it's one where he whiffs the first couple of hit points. Like, it, you can tell it did not get the maximum damage it could have, and it's because he threw it too far out. So the first three or four points of contact just go to the air. And then when he does actually hit her, it still does damage. It still looks impressive, but you know that it does not do what it needed to do. And he, he scrabbles to catch up after that. And I think that's part of the panic, is throwing it too early. Had it been in a, you know, a couple of rounds earlier, I don't think you would have made that mistake. And this is why I think he was probably the best player in practice and thought that he was going to be, this was going to be a bit of a cakewalk for him. But on the night, he absolutely biffed that fight. So Metro takes his seat for the final round. And realistically, whilst there is still a fair amount of pressure on him, he must feel there's slightly less pressure because 46 seconds, even if they've been increasing the difficulty as we go, which I assume they might have been, they might have been in, you know, increasing the CPU's difficulty level as we up the opponent. He knows he doesn't have to do much. He doesn't have to perform miracles to win. He just has to be consistent. And he just goes in there, he corners Chunners, he does exactly what he did in the past, he finishes her off in 75 seconds with a throw, he doesn't make it fancy, he just gets the job done. He nearly gets a perfect in the process as well. Like Dom says when he sits down, I don't think this will be too tricky for him. And as it turns out, it wasn't. You're absolutely right there, it was nothing flashy, it was the everything he needed to do in that moment. Now, you know, I'll start with you. You set a blinding pace. 15 seconds, your first fight is 17 seconds. You were the favourite. And then it all went on. What happened? Well, I just lost my momentum, as, um, what's his name over there? He said just now. Uh, Derek, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I just lost my momentum. Suddenly, just jumped over my head, gave me a few kicks, and I just lost my call. Okay, now Metro, uh, you do have a slight advantage in that you do work in games design, so you mm. play a lot of games, but then you do have a name like Metro, which I would imagine would hinder you. What do you attribute your success to today? You didn't make the best of starts, but you came through in the end. Consistency. That's the name of the game. Yep. And you opted for a, a sports casual kind of dress, a lighter, more fluid dress. Did that help? Oh yeah, yeah, it gives you more leverage. Ah, uh, because personally when I play I Spire, <laughs> I just tend to play it in a pant. At home, obviously. At home, down sure. in the arcades. I, I go silly. Anything, anything you want, Metro. Right. And we go to the post-match, and Ian's like, yeah, what's-his-name over there was right. And Tom is quite indignant in this one. He's like, Derek, Derek Lynch, co-commentator, 
been here for a couple of seasons, you might have seen him. Yeah, exactly. Show some bloody respect to him. And that's when Dom does drop the kind of... <laughs> drops the brass elephant into the room by going, you do have a slight advantage, Metro, because you work in game design, don't you? It was not the game design that helped him. As is Games Master, it was the free-flowing clothes that actually was the key to his success. Pants and all of that. A loose-fitting pant, and also helped overcome the handicap that was being called Metro. When they started talking about pants and stuff like here, I had a note where I was like, do you remember back in that Games Master magazine interview where he did, it's like, I don't say pants anymore. I felt like he said pants a lot in this series. He said pants a lot. Kirk said pants a lot. Trousers. Trousers, pants, general lower half wearing, going commando with the girly episode last, last week. There's still a lot of pants about. We're going to take a short break here in the second half. Our special guest is Deepak Verma, Sanjay from EastEnders. Of course, they don't have adverts on BBC One, so I'm going to sit down next to Deepak and guide him gently but firmly through this commercial break. <laughs> Sir, sir, he's defecting. Sir Brian, we've got him. He's calling 0800 492929. He's gone over to... Barclay Card. To Barclay Card. He's swapping his old credit card for a Barclay Card and they're knocking £150 off the balance. Sorry to wake you, Sir Brian. Technical problem. Now, let's see. Ow! Call 0800 492929 and defect now. Guess what we've done to the price of selected spectacles in the Dolland and Aitchison sale? That's right. We've cut them in half. Morning. Morning, Dad. <laughs> oh, yeah. I must sort out that loan. But I can't get to the bank. Hello! There's a new convenient way to get an unsecured personal loan. Call Lombard Direct, free on 0800 215000. 24 hours a day. We have loans from 800 to 15,000 pounds for almost anything, and our rates are low. One call to Lombard Direct, and you're laughing. To arrange a loan or for more information, call free on 0800 215,000. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or Zepbound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. 
Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Introducing Duracell PowerCheck, the new generation of battery with a built-in power gauge that tells you how much power is left in your battery anytime, anywhere. Thick socks, your favorite drink, and half an hour of unashamed nostalgia, spiced with a few surprises. What better way to spend a winter evening? Classic Trains, tonight at 8.30 on 4. Welcome back to Games Master. You may be wondering what this stance is. This is me using every inch of my willpower to stop myself from rushing out and buying all those products advertised in the break. Dom does what I used to get made fun of when I first started playing D&D, which is taking the defensive stance so that he doesn't rush off and buy all of those products from that previous commercial break. And given how much that Dom is making from this series, pff, I mean, he could probably afford most of them. Even if there was like a couple of cars and a DFS sofa sale in there. Oh, yeah. He could buy a new car to carry his new sofa home. Yeah, especially with interest-free credit and all that. It's the January sales. But anyway, we need to get into our celebrity challenge here. What are we playing, Games Master? My second game tonight is also a sequel. It is the ferocious Destruction Derby 2 on the PlayStation. My contestants challenge will be perfectly simple. Survive for two minutes and a total Destruction Derby. The lights on the indicator in the bottom right of the screen show how damaged each area of the car is. If a light is black, one more hit there will spell disaster. Good luck and start your engines. It's the return of a Series 5 favourite, Destruction Derby 2, and it is again that destruction mode. You've just got to survive for two minutes. Keep an eye on those lights because one black light on that dial and the game is all over. This is not the same destruction mode we had before because the destruction mode we had before was the one where everyone is homing in on you. This is just the general destruction bowl. So the cars are going for other cars as well. And I don't think they made that clear enough or maybe I just didn't understand it because I did watch this challenge going, why are all the cars over there? Why aren't they all just chasing him? I mean, that is a much tougher challenge. This one, I, you know, spoilers, it's actually a bit boring. Yeah, all you've got to do is just stay out of the way because they're not gunning for you. They're just gunning for whoever is closest. He makes it harder for himself by feeling like he's also trying to find where the action is and join it. I mean, he's playing the game as we would play the game, is that, you know, you want to score points, you want to take out some cars... He's kind of missing that really all he has to do is survive. And he's like, no, but I, I want to play the game, I think, maybe. Yeah. We won't talk too much about Destruction Derby 2 because, spoilers, we get it as a review coming up. But this is a marked improvement over the first Destruction Derby. The car physics are better. The tracks are better and more dynamic. There's a bit of a, a hill in the middle of the Destruction Dome, which doesn't mean you, you do get to go all directions with your car. You will leave the ground quite impressively. I think as a result, despite it not being the kind of focused everyone ganging up on you mode, it is a slightly more fun mode to play because there's some differences in terrain and you can end up turning over onto your roof, flying into the sky. 
you're not welded to the ground. So please welcome straight from London's picturesque East End, Mr. Deepak Verma. Welcome to the show, Deepak. All right. Now, when you're, uh, when you're out and about in the street and everything, what, what do people come up and say to you? They're not very original, actually. No, what they just, they, what they just they ask it? how the wife is, basically. Yeah? Yeah. Did they ever give you any betting tips? Yeah, they, it just gets a bit tiring, because yeah. like, it's like, you know, 24 hours a day, that's all you get. Uh -huh. So it's, I just yeah. say, give me a break, you yeah. know. Yeah. So how is the wife? Oh, not you as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, you constantly, Sanjay constantly gets a hard time. It's either one thing or another which is yeah. beating his brow. In a perfect world, what would you like to see happen to Sanjay in his dentist? Uh, what would I like? Well, right, he's at the stall and he looks to his right and he sees six blonde women with hair up to there. I mean that, uh -huh. And then we take it from there. Hair down to there. Hair up to there. Might mean kind of starts down there and he goes yeah, up. Yeah, I suppose so, yeah. So, yeah, our celebrity for this week, we heard about him a little bit in that Games Master magazine article, Sanjay from EastEnders, a.k.a. Deepak Verma. Yeah, British actor, writer and producer of Indian and Punjabi descent and Hindu heritage, best remembered as Sanjay off of EastEnders, who we talked about a little on our Christmas EastEnders special because he was getting back together with Geeta. They were having a, a refresh of their relationship, a reconciliation. Yeah, a reconciliation, because I'm guessing that comes after the affair that he had had. It's been a while since we, we talked about that episode, because he has an affair with Geeta's sister. I was reading about this on Wikipedia. By the way, actually, speaking of Wikipedia, I feel like he wrote his Wikipedia page himself, because there's even a warning at the top of his Wikipedia page that says, there's no citations on this, so don't trust everything you read. I mean, one thing you can trust is he was made an MBE. There are some bits that are, but like, yeah, it really feels like it's sort of bullet pointed of just like, and here's what I also did. Here's what I also did. Here's what I also did. Uh, yeah, I just really got the impression that it was written by him. Although I do appreciate it because we've looked up some of these soap actors for these previous challenges, and they haven't even had a Wikipedia page. That's the low bar is like when you've been on a soap for two, three years and you don't have a Wikipedia page. He had quite the tumultuous time on EastEnders as well, like, character-wise, I mean, uh, because obviously, you know, he had the affair. He was a, a, an adulterous gambler, I believe he's sort of described as. But also, he was then falsely accused of Geeta's murder when she disappeared. I know it's a steady paycheck, but dear Lord, the ringer that some actors get put through on EastEnders, you have to wonder whether it's worth it. We've talked in the past about people's treatment on soap. Was it Coronation Street or was it, was it the, uh, Emmerdale? It was Emmerdale about, you know, the, the psychological damage that the character's treatment had on the actor. And then you've got EastEnders, which for the most part is a misery simulator, five days a week with an omnibus on Sunday. Bit bleak at times, isn't it, EastEnders? I mean, we make that joke about, you know, you never say it'll be the happiest Christmas Wolford has ever had. But there's a reason for it is every Christmas there is some level of death or destruction. We were lucky with the episode we covered in that there was some comedy and humour to it. Thank fuck, because I, you know, the Press Gang episode we did was Tough Doors. EastEnders, at least, we kind of managed to coast through it and have a bit of a giggle along the way. But I think Deepak is a great actor on EastEnders. It's a shame he couldn't have acted with a bit more enthusiasm about being on Games Master because this is another one that feels a bit like contractual obligation. A little bit, yeah. I don't, I don't really feel like he's got much of a, a passion for, for games and whatnot. Don welcomes Deepak and says, you know, what do people say when they come up to you in the street? And he's like, oh, they're not very original. They just say, you know, how's the wife? Betting tips. You know, I just want a break for it. And Dom's immediately in there with, speaking of, 
How's the wife? It's a great gag. It's a very good joke. And I don't think he reacts to it with the the respect that it actually deserved. Because that's a really good, solid gag. Yeah. And Dom then just goes, well, let's move on. Sanjay is constantly getting bad luck. Ideal world. What would you like to see happen to Sanjay? And Deepak is just like, um, working on the market stall. And then six blonde women with hair up to there and we'd take it from there and dom is quick as a flash he's like hair up to there what, are, you, <laughs> yeah. are you after centaurs he, he knew what he was trying to say but the words did not form in all of the right order i mean did, did he watch the lion the witch and the wardrobe as a kid and get a miss tumnus fetish or something hair up to there but the obligatory banter over deepak goes over to take his seat and dom goes to the box. And whoops, Vicar, if it isn't Rick Henderson beside me in the commentary box. Rick, if you could be any character in EastEnders, who would it be and why? Well, it'd have to be Bianca, because after the other week, I've got kind of a taste for short women's clothing. Right, OK. We mm. don't need to go any more into that. Rick, have you got any tips in for Deepak? Yep, certainly. He's in a very slow motor, so he's going to have to just keep away from the other cars. Also, don't run into the other cars with the front of the car, because you will knacker that engine. Okay, thank you very much, Rick. We've got Rick Henderson in the booth for this one, who says he wants to be Bianca, because after last week, he's now got a taste for women's clothing. Yes, the shorter hemline. (laughs) Whoops, vicar indeed. Rick has been on fire as of late anyway. Like, I think Series 6 is a very good Rick Henderson series, but particularly in this latter half of the series, he has been, like, on fire most episodes. He's been very, very good, very quick-written. Although he does say here that, you know, you're going to be in a slow motor this time, so don't race into the other cars because you will just damage the engine. Which is funny as well, because the idea behind Destruction Derby 2, which we'll talk a little bit more about next week, is was trying to be more... Uh, american version so less focus on the the classic english banger car and more like a nascar situation so it is funny that rick's on here about this being a slower motor but his advice is very very clear do not drive into the other cars so what's the first thing that sanjay does here oh he piles right into the middle with every other car and goes flying into the stratosphere as a result he's having a bit of fun but it is not the way to win this challenge Still. Flying through the air does kill about 10 seconds, and he does quite well. This is just a general death bowl rather than the absolute destruction, everyone dogpiling on you mode, as we said earlier. It's mostly uneventful, and a minute in, he's still mostly green and greenish yellow. And Rick does give the very useful tip of, like, start reversing. It's actually going right back to that other challenge of reverse because your back end can take more damage. Misses. It's funny as well, because the second that Rick says that, you see Deepak slam on the brake and then start reversing. Like he, I mean, spoilers, wins this challenge through Rick's advice. Rick is essentially coaching him through this. All that's missing is after Rick says that and he starts reversing, it's him just looking over his shoulder and going, thumbs up, cheers, mate. (laughs) He does take a couple more tumbles. He does get thrown into the air a couple more times, lands on his roof. He ends the challenge in pretty good nick. Like it's not at no point does it ever truly feel dangerous and like he might lose. Yeah, he's only got like one on on the left hand side. He's got one red light, so he was never like in any massive danger. I don't think of of losing this, particularly when he only had like you know ten seconds left when that red light comes up. All he had to do was just stay out of the way, and he basically does that. So yeah, thanks to Rick Henderson, Deepak wins the challenge. Well, Deepak, nice for me. What were some of the tactics you were using there then? 
Well, to be quite honest, uh, it was a complete fluke. I was just avoiding the cars, that was all. Rick, yeah, Rick and I were trying to work them out. We, we couldn't <laughs> quite see them that... To start off with, I headed for it, I went for it, and yeah. then I just kind of slowed down a bit. Mm -hmm. And it's just hung around the edge. Yeah. Were you ever worried at all? Your car was getting a little bit battered at the end? Well, that's why I started reversing. Uh-huh. Just kept going around in circles. Taking us uh, a future for Sanji uh, in a kind of rally driving mode? <laughs> no, 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 no. Not around that little square that little <laughs> Robbie once crashed the milk floater no, that it's a thought, that's why I'm a presenter of this show and not an EastEnders scriptwriter. And in the post-match, he thinks he won on a complete fluke. He says he was just avoiding the cars as best he can. Well, not that good at times. And Don wonders, is there a future for Sanjay as a rally driver? And that, I think, is the point where Deepak loses interest. When he's asking him about the game, he's quite happy to talk about it. Oh, you know, it's a total fluke and this is what I did here. The second that Dom asks him questions about his character on EastEnders, like, the, like a light goes off. And he's just less ass talking about it. I go, it feels like he is done talking about EastEnders in interviews. Which is a shame because it's still what he's kind of known for, you know? I mean, don't get me wrong. He's gone on to do some great things. Even if he did write his own Wikipedia page, he has done some stuff. But, you know, mate, you're not giving Dom much to work with here. You're on the show because you're Sanjay from EastEnders. Like in the same way that next week we've got someone from Coronation Street, you know, we've had people from Emmerdale in the past or Hollyoaks. You're on that show because you play a character on a soap. So you're going to get questions about that character from that soap. Do you think part of it was it talked with Ricky and Bianca and they were like, mate, it was a fucking shit show. We did not want to be there. They had us trying to build a computer. I just wanted to play FIFA on the Mega Drive. I don't know what was going on. I guarantee you Ricky and Bianca never even mentioned they were on Games Master on sets. Like, what did you do? What did you do that weekend? Nothing. Nothing. Definitely don't watch Channel Four at six thirty on a Thursday. First up, shave all your hair off, grab a hammer, and smash things up. No, it's not a Millwall home game. It's Trash It. In Trash It, you take your hammer and smash down the entire level. You then use your vacuum cleaner to suck all the pieces up, and you go around collecting Timmies, who are little men running around the levels. With everything you've collected, you can go to the hammer shop and buy one of over 30 new hammers. With the bigger hammers, you can progress further through the game. There are 90 hammer-tastic levels, but of course there's also a battle mode, and in battle mode, you basically have up to four people using the PlayStation's multi-tap, running around frantically, trying to find the bell. The first player to ring the bell is the winner. It's nice to see an original game every now and then, but Trash It is just nothing special, it's average. And when you've got a PlayStation, you've got a selection of over 100 brilliant games to get. So why not get one of those? Up first, we have Trash It on the PlayStation, where you play, and get this, a character called Jack Hammer. Huh? Get it? Yep. Yeah, basically, you just smash up some stuff, then you, you vacuum. I also, just going to say here, you vacuum it up. Hoover is a brand's name. Let's go full Alan Partridge there. But yeah, you just, you hammer stuff, then you vacuum it, and then you buy bigger hammers. I'll be honest, they're more positive about this game than everyone else was. This was a PAL-only game, and that says a lot. Developed by Rage Software, came out for the PlayStation, the Saturn, and MS-DOS. And let's see, Saturn Power gave it 51%, Sega Saturn Magazine gave it 38%. We don't get a score from Play's Tom Sargent, but he labelled it as an unusual puzzle-come-platform game that plays too sluggishly and becomes repetitive far too soon. A 16-bit game at a 32-bit price. Woof. I feel that Rick and Ed's 
score here of 75%, which is, you know, a lot higher than Sega Saturn Magazine giving it 38, is off the back of the multiplayer, because we've talked about this a lot on Games Master. They're really into multiplayer stuff at the moment. You know, Ed even says at the end, like, yeah, it's an original game, but it's not very good. It's a bit average. But it's like, it's the multiplayer where the real fun is. And if you've had a bit of fun with the multiplayer, then maybe that's where your score is coming from rather than the single player aspects. Unfortunately, we can't show you half of the scenes in Phantasmagoria 2 because otherwise your mom and dad will rate us nasty complaining letters. Now, Phantasmagoria 2 has actually got rid of the original two characters, got rid of the original plot and introduced a brand new plot. It's a point and click adventure game with some incredibly complex puzzles later on. The most impressive part of the full motion video sections with real actors on real movie sets and it looks really, really impressive. Now, Phantasmagoria 2 has been rated an 18 certificate and that's because it is so gory, it's unbelievable. If you thought Phantasmagoria, especially the trowel scene, was gory, that's nothing in comparison. Criticism that the first one actually received has been improved upon immensely. The plot itself isn't just schlock B-movie horror, and it's bloodier than a vampire convention. Up next is Phantasmagoria 2, a puzzle of flesh on the PC, which is a sequel to Phantasmagoria, but like it's, it is more of a, an anthology thing as opposed to being a direct sequel. It's sort of a, a new game, but with the, the same title. Same title, no characters, no connections tied to the predecessor. They tried to season of the witch it, really. This was their attempt at doing a Halloween 3, which is, well, same name, but different set of circumstances, different set of creatives. It was also a lot higher budget, because uh, whilst the first game was shot against a blue screen with superimposed backgrounds, this was filmed on set and on location, we even saw that in the in the series four. We got the set visit to Phantasmagoria. I think so. Yeah, yeah, we we did. And then and then this one, no, they they went super big budget on it. They shot around Seattle, Washington, from February to September '96. They shot on digital beta cam. There was nearly four and a half hours of video and over 200 pages of scripting. The game, I think, gets a, a lot more praise here. 85% this gets here, you know, Rick talking about, you know, it's an 18, it's very, very gory, it's bloodier than a vampire convention. And they sort of putting over, you know, Ed mentioned what you talked about there, the, the real actors, real sets, and this, that, and the other. And it feels as though Games Master enjoy the controversy of the game you know this game was banned in singapore and it was heavily censored elsewhere like it's they kind of enjoy that aspect of it but when you look at other reviews people were not kind to this game at all the one that really jumped out to me was GameSpot's review uh, which reads as the credits rolled all i felt was regret regret that i had spent a good chunk of my life in this ugly world with annoying unappealing characters and their silly problems it sort of feels that like it was a game that had a lot of blood, a lot of gore, a lot of this, a lot of that. And it was trying to sell itself on that as opposed to being a complete game with actually fun challenges within that, fun puzzles to be solved. In many ways, this game is like a lot of the later Hellraiser sequels. Yeah, or later Saw sequels. Yeah. It's less about plot and characters. It's just like, what crazy kills can we do in this edition? You can still get this game now, along with the original and the seventh guest and all that kind of stuff. A lot of them are on good old games. They're available at a fairly budget price. And I would say they're an interesting little curio. And as it is kind of that time of year at the moment, worth a look. Get yourself something cheap and spooky for Halloween and not just, you know, 
a Poundland mask that you might suffocate on. The thing that really jumped out to me when I was reading the Wikipedia page on this is that they did have plans to do a third instalment of Phantasmagoria, tried to get Roberta Williams to come back for it, but the reason why they didn't do it is that we are kind of now in the death throes of the point-and-click adventure game. And I hadn't really thought about that much in terms of our Games Master timeline, that we sort of as a society are coming to an end with our interest in the point-and-click adventure. We're sort of moving into the 3D world. They're still being made. You know, we had the X-Files previewed a couple of episodes ago. We've got this here. Blade Runner, I think, is still within our timeline. But the genre is, we are over the crest of the point-and-click adventure interest. Uh, and I just thought that was worth noting because they have been featured a lot on Games Master way, way back in Series 1 and Series 2. You know, that was a huge part of the consultation zone was point-and-click adventures. And here we are, sort of, we're now kind of in the, the dying days of them. And it's so peculiar because that was 1997. Now here we are, 25 years later. And what do you see? You see a resurgence in point-and-click adventures. We've got a brand new Monkey Island that's doing great business. The FMV adventure has made a return. My mate Rupert's been in a bunch of them and they're doing really good business. And I think it is because people now recognise that games can be as much about or more about storytelling than actual gameplay and remembering commands and remembering combos and this, that and the other. Sometimes a narrative is as important as a gameplay mechanic. And I appreciate that. I love full motion video games. I love the Telltale games, those interactive stories. What attracts me the most to a game at the moment is often the story. Why did I sink 140 plus hours into Assassin's Creed Valhalla? It was the story mode. Why do I like the Phoenix Wright games? It's the story. It's the same reason why I've still got a shelf full of fighting fantasy novels over there. It's all about the story as much as it is the gameplay mechanic. And it always has been for me, and it's just nice that gaming society as a whole has begun to recognise that again. In Cool Borders, you can whiz around on a snowboard like that bloke from Jamiroquai. Unlike him, though, you don't have to be a get. When I first saw Cool Borders, I was amazed at the actual quality of graphics. Alpine Surfer, which is an arcade machine, hasn't got as good. This is absolutely superb. And to be honest, it well deserves the phrase radical. And our last review here is for Cool Borders on the PlayStation, which I um I didn't play. I don't think I played much of the original Cool Borders 2, though. Played a lot of that. My brother had Cool Borders 2 for my PlayStation because uh, he was big into his snowboarding. So I played a lot of that one. I don't think I've ever played the original, though. I can't remember if I played the original. I think I played a demo of the original. I think it was on one of those official PlayStation magazine demo discs or the like. But I remember it being around. I remember it being a big thing because, as it said here, is we've got the kind of the looks and the graphics of Alpine Surfer and that on the PlayStation. In many ways, this game looks better, although you don't get the fun of the peripheral with the wind machine in front of you. But this was a, a kicking point because there were, what, three, four Cool Borders games over time? Yeah, we get a fair number of sequels and spin-offs to this. But basically, the Cool Borders franchise has eight games within the next few years, because the series is dead by 2000. But that's eight games released within that short space of time. They saw an opening in the market. They saw something fresh that they could do, and they went for it. And it was way more entertaining than playing a skiing game with the mind drive. 
<laughs> Yuri Geller should have been playing this. It's also credited uh, a lot for like the birth of the extreme sports game franchise. You know, we get Tony Hawk's it in a few years' time. Unfortunately, that won't fall within our timeline because it comes out in '99. But you know, we get a lot of those type of games, especially with the rise of extreme sports within popular culture. We get a lot of those skateboarding, snowboarding, BMX games, and and this, that, and the other. And here's Cool Borders here, 1996, 1997. It's kind of the first one to be like this. Limited though it is, it's only got like three tracks or something like that. But you're right, like, and I think it's the point that Rick makes. This is an arcade-looking type game of Alpine Racer, but it's available in the home. Although speaking of limited, this review is very limited. Rick appears and goes, this is even better than those arcade games. 82%. That's it for the review. We get a joke about Jamiroquai. We get that one sentence from Ed. And then we get the score. Ed does not get a look in on this one. It's it's all Rick and it's all radical. It's all 82%. And I'm really sad that we don't get details on JK from Jamiroquai at the Games Master website. Little Tommy Timer suddenly said sayonara, which as the girls will tell you is Japanese for goodbye. On next week's show, we have a Top of the Pops attractive lady Bear Van Beer on the show. And I'll leave you with this question. If Anthea Turner didn't exist, would it be necessary to invent her? Good night. Regular old punching bag is Anthea Turner. I think particularly around this time, I feel like a lot of comedy shows used Anthea Turner as their punchline. Was this either before or after the the kind of the pyrotechnic incident? Do you remember that? She's hosting the National Lottery at this point. Oh, no, until... Oh, well, actually until 1996. And then she started doing Wish You Were Here. Uh, she got sacked from GMTV because Eamon Holmes asked her to be sacked. Oof, this is this is a rough one. Her autobiography, Fools Rush In, for which she was paid an estimated £400,000 advance, sold 451 copies. Oof. So 451 fools rushed in. <laughs> Very good. But I think that's going to do it for this episode of Games Master. A bit of a return to normal, a bit of a, a return to normality in a way. Ash, what did you make of this one? It is amazing to say that the celebrity challenge let it down because actually the gameplay was perfectly competent. The celebrity won. He was just bloody miserable and didn't want to be there and didn't want to engage which is a shame because the Street Fighter Challenge, so good. Top tier gameplay, some real tension at the end and a real kind of like a defeat snatched from the jaws of victory there. The reviews, whilst Cool Border's review was very, very brief, a fun little set of reviews covering an interesting little selection of games, including one that really never would be known outside of the UK and Europe. And the news was quite a bit of fun. We got to talk a bit more about Sonic 3D. We got to talk about the Borg. Still not first contact, but we got to talk about them. And it's just literally Deepak being on the screen was just like, mate, you are you are harshing our vibe. It's a thing that we've had a lot through Series 5 and Series 6, where you've got two challenge episodes, like which, you know, which is the, the standard now. If one of them doesn't land, it means that like half of the episode doesn't land or a good chunk of the of the second half of the episode doesn't land. And that's what we get here because that Street Fighter challenge, that Street Fighter Alpha 2 challenge for me could end up being like one of my, like it's up there with my favorite challenges of the series. And when we come to do our wrap up episode, that will be one of the first ones I write down as like favorite challenges from this series. Because I thought it was awesome. A really good setup, a really good and different way of doing a fighting challenge and actually with great results because you had great players on it. So I think the first half of this episode is great. 
But you're right, that Deepak challenge, the celebrity challenge, isn't just that he's a bit of a miserable beggar. It's also because, as you mentioned earlier, it's not the same type of destruction bowl that you would have had in Destruction Derby. There's less threat and peril for him. So it just feels like it's more of a leisurely drive. Like the, the damage he takes is because he goes looking for damage to be taken. Bit of a foil hat moment here. Do you think they originally had him playing in the original everyone's going to get you mode? And they were just like, oh God, this is going to be over so quickly. We need to make it easier. How can we make it easier? We'll just make it a regular destruction bowl. And as a result, he survived. He won the joystick, but also it was boring. Yeah, a little bit dull. So when it comes to scores, it is a tough one because I want this to be within the 90s range because that first challenge is so great, but I don't think it is. And I'm just now got to try and work out within my mind's eye of how much does the D-Pack challenge take this down? Because it is a good chunk of the second half. It's basically all of the second half. I would say, while we've already kind of alluded to the fact that it goes a a bit shonky next week for uh, Bear Van Beers. If her challenge had been here, this would be a mid to high 90s because while she is shocking on the game, it's a lot of fun. She's fun in it. Her shouting at Dominic while she's playing the game is genuinely hilarious. I think I'm high 80s on this. I think I might be DeLorean territory. As I had, I had either 85 or DeLorean written down. And I don't think I can go as low as 85 because that feels unfair, particularly because that Street Fighter challenge is so great. So I had straight DeLorean written down. But I think that is going to wrap it up for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. You all rule. You can check us out on social media. We're on Twitter at underconsolepod, on Instagram at under.console, or you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com. And if you want to give us a bit of feedback in real time, if you want some interaction with us, with other listeners, with other fans of retro gaming and pop culture, you can do so over on our Discord, details of which can be found in the show notes or on social media. And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash under console pod, where you'll get access to UCP Extra, this show format, but about other shows from the 80s and 90s, and our monthly community show, Under Console Nation. At the £5 level, you'll get next week's episode one week early and ad-free, but at the £10 level, you get a little bit extra. Ash, what is that? At that £10 level, they get our Under Consultation Golden Joystick Waggler mug filled with sweeties, retro trading cards, pin badges, stickers, a whole mess of stuff, which is thrown straight at your door. And a shout out to those £10 backers, Xanderthal, William, Tom, The Amazing Cliff, Super Sexy, David Fisher, Simon, Sean, Richard, Reese, Nick, Misha, Matty, Boom, Mark, Link, Kevin, Ian Williams, Ian Roberts, I Am Cheadle, Harriet Mangagill, Gordon Dempster, Gordon Brands, David Palmer, Chrissy Two Sticks, Arcadia Wild Bill, Andrew, Adam, and Andy. Thank you all so much for listening. We will be back in seven days' time with Bear Van Beers. Take care, everyone. Good night.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.